Here we are with another episode of the Research Conversations podcast. And I'm your host, V. Vale, and we're especially privileged today to have with us all the way from London and Berlin, <laughs> Daniel <laughs> Miller. And uh, I'm just going to jump right in and, and ask you about that. I always wanted to ask you about that first taping I heard that I guess made your life blossom in some commercial slash art way, mm -hmm. which was, of course, Warm Leatherette, which I immediately interpreted as J.G. Ballardian in the aesthetic and the philosophy. Yeah. I mean, but let's ha hear your take on it. Well, it was oh. <laughs> completely influenced. There's, there's a, I mean, there's, there's a bit of a story behind it, how it got to that point. I read Crash, as everybody else, uh, well, not everybody, as a number of people of my generation read it, read it by J.G. Ballard. And I'd been to film school. Oh. And uh, I was, I'd been to film school in Guildford in Surrey, which is mm. really, at the time, was an extremely unpleasant place to be if you had long hair. <laughs> and um, but that's another story. And I, for a few years, a couple of years after I left college, I, that's when I read Crash, and I, I just was completely, you know, it just opened my mind completely and to make so many different things. And I was so excited about it. I called my there's a guy I used to work with a lot at college. We used to make do stuff together. And as soon as I read it, I called him and said, "Yeah, I just read it. It's amazing, isn't it?" And so we just, what we we decided to do, maybe foolish, I don't know, maybe not foolishly, but we what we we thought we let's write a film script for it, Ooh. and so we started to embark on this film script for Crash, which um, is pretty difficult, but we we did one, uh, which I have somewhere, I've got somewhere maybe, but what we you know we we're kind of naive and we didn't really understand things about like rights, book rights and things like that and. We found out that we didn't even know, you know, we were just doing it for, for fun, really. Sure. But it got to a point where we thought, well, this could actually be pretty good. And we found out that somebody owned the rights and we approached them and sent them the script. And they were kind of a bit offhand. I can't even remember. It was somebody in Belgium. And he said, no, we're working on our own script, blah, blah, blah. Thank you very much. But obviously that the rights period ran out eventually for him. And obviously David Cronenberg ended up making the film. But we'd done all this work, and I had all this, you know, had these kind of, and I thought, and it's just around the time that I was that I was starting to make electronic music, and just after, and punk was just hap happened or just happening, and it just came together for me that I had all this information in my head about this that I processed, but while writing the script, and I thought rather than doing like a, an hour, like a hundred minute film, why not make it into a three minute song? And so I, that's what that was how that's how that came about, basically. A distillation. A, a kind of distillation, like a trailer <laughs> or something. I don't know what. A lot of people don't realize that there was a time when electronic music was actually avant-garde and actually not a lot of people knew about it or heard about it yeah. before the internet and all that. Oh, God, yeah. So, how, <laughs> so you tell me about that time. I mean, we can go back to the beginning of the 20th century almost, but I first became aware of it through listening to things like... Uh, for me, John Peel, who was a UK DJ radio, a radio DJ, a legendary man, who's probably, I would say, he's the most influential person in British music in the last 30 years, because he his programme was so eclectic. He would play, you'd never know what he was going to play. He would play very obscure things. He'd play very mainstream things. He, in those days, it was completely different now with radio, he was able to programme whatever he wanted. He didn't have to kind of adhere to research, market research or uh, programs or playlists or anything like that. So he just played what he wanted. And he started out in the 60s over here, actually. He's English. He was English. He sadly passed away. He was English. But he was a DJ in Texas for a while because they loved because he was from Liverpool and they loved his accent because he, you know, because of the Beatles and everything like that. And then he came back and he, then he worked in pirate radio in the UK in the mid-60s. He had a program called The Perfume Garden Ooh. And it was very, it was a bit, it was kind of very hippie-ish. That's uh, a very yeah. er erotic and book, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, people would send poetry in, and he would read it, and that was kind of not that great for me. But um, as the as the time went on, he started to play really interesting. Well, he was playing very interesting music, and he was 
playing a lot of music from, you know, he started playing Can and things like that. Yeah. And just around that time, there was, I can't, it's a bit fuzzy in my head of, of exactly what was first, but I remember hearing Tonto's Expanding Headband, Ooh. that album. I remember hearing Switched On Bach, which I didn't understand because I thought there's all this incredible possibilities. Why are you co trying to copy kind of acoustic instruments when you have all these incredible possibilities making new sounds? In retrospect, I still feel that, but it's an incredible technical achievement, that, that those records, those Walter Carlos, Wendy Carlos records. But I, I, started, I heard Armandou, early Armandou, I heard Can, and although they weren't strictly electronic, they used electronics in a way that I hadn't really heard before. And Tonto's expanding headband, and a guy called uh, Ron Giesen, who was a sound artist, poet, he'd worked with Pink Floyd. He came to talk, give a talk at our college, in what we call it was called complimentary lessons. So it wasn't specifically about film or anything, but it was. And he was very interesting. He brought a synthesizer with him. He brought an AKS, Synthi AKS, British synthesizer in a suitcase, similar to the kind of thing that Brian Eno used in Roxy Music, etc. And he just got it, and he didn't really know how to use it. So he just kind of got us all to try and see if we could kind of figure it out together as a bunch of him and a bunch of students. And we didn't really do it, but we, but just like, it, was, it has this kind of a pin matrix that connects the different modules in the synthesizer together. And normally when you see a modular synth, it has lots of wires connecting the different elements, but here it's had a pin matrix. So you just put a pin in it, it would connect two things hmm. anyway. And that's when I first had raw kind of oscillators for the first time, which was like blew, blew my mind basically. So I just got into it and I, you know, um, and then, so I'm, I'm rambling here. No, but, you're uh, not. You're, you're recalling. Yeah, and so, you know, and in the seventh, so by, that was late 60s, I guess, or maybe it was 1970, I can't remember. And then, you know, of course, I started listening to things like Kraftwerk, Tangerine Dream, Klaus Schulze. Uh, it was actually the first Klaus Schulze album I, was, I still listen to a lot. It's great. It's funny how records like that, I was shocked that that ended up in the New Age racks oh. uh, when New Age music started, because I used to listen to it, I don't know if you're familiar with it, it's called Ehrlicht. It's the first Klaus Schulze album. It's basically mm. a two, it's one song aside, they're just basically drones. And uh, I just used to play it really loud, and I didn't understand why people would think that was new age music. But anyway, that's a, that's another story. Yeah, and of course, I, and then I got kind of obsessed by Kraftwerk and Can and Noi and all those groups who were either electronic or used electronics in a in a kind of very creative way. I was doing tape loop stuff and things like that. At college, mm -hmm. at college, we had three little tape recorders, and we could do tape loop phase tape loop things which I didn't know that Steve, I'd never heard of Steve Reich, but that we were do, kind of doing the same kind of thing. Wow. Uh, but, well, I'm not saying I'm not, not as good, of course, but the same kind of ideas of things going in and out of phase with each other, words and mm. stuff like that. But uh, the thought of owning a synthesizer at that time was, um, you know, it was just completely out of reach because they were so, so incredibly expensive, the big Moogs and Arps and stuff like that. It was before, it was, there weren't any kind of the cheaper Japanese synthesizers around at that time. But then around the mid-70s, you know, Roland and Korg, Japanese companies, started making synthesizers, which were far less expensive. And then they came on the second-hand market a couple of years later, which made them even less expensive. And that's when I bought my first synthesizer. And it was, it was just around the punk, just after, well, around punk, it was 76, 77. Mm. And the whole DIY record scene was starting. I thought, well, I didn't really think about making a record, but I, I just thought I really want to get a synth. I can, I can afford to get a synthesizer now. I was working as a film editor. You, you got paid as a film editor? Yeah, I got paid. Wow. <laughs> Most usually. <laughs> well, I, you know, at the time I was working on quite interesting documentaries, and I was getting paid, and I was doing a lot of overtime because, uh, made, you know, because... That was double time, and then if you work more than three hours over time, you got one and a half, two and a half times. And there's always two, so much to do um, in terms of syncing up rushes and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, it was film, of course, not video. And so I, got, I, bought, a, I bought this Korg 700S synthesizer from Macari's Music Store in Charing Cross Road in London, which, still, which is still there. It's called Akari's? Macari's. Macari's. Macari's, yeah. It's still a very general you know, second-hand saxophones and wow. guitars and stuff. And I bought a TIAC four-track tape recorder, 
seven and what was it seven and a half inches per second. It wasn't fifteen inches per second. And I started messing around. It was an incredibly incredible experience for me to have to be able to multi-track because I'd been in like bands before. Oh yeah. Yeah. We'll go back school, to that. At school and stuff okay, like that. Bands. And you always had to, and I, I was a terrible musician, and the, the guys I played with were terrible musicians, and we could never, whatever ideas we had, we could never really co- express them in any way whatsoever, because we were so, we had no language to communicate it, and we was, even if we could have done, we were so bad, we wouldn't have been able to play it, so, but we had a lot of fun, but then I realised, you know, if I was doing it on my own, I could actually, I could have just internally communicate my idea, you know, without having to deal with the politics of being in a band, or the communication of being in a band. And then I got to a point where I was actually quite liking what I was doing, and I thought, and the, as I said, the DIY thing was single records was uh, starting to take off very early days. But there were lots, there, you know, there was an article in the Melody Maker, which was a, a British music magazine, one of the four major British music magazines at the time, weekly, by a band called the Desperate Bicycles. Oh. And they get, they did a little instruction manual in the about how to make your own record, basically. And they used to, they were called the Desperate Bicycles. They used to press their records, and then, then they used to cycle around London distributing them. That's why they were called the Desperate Bicycles. And it wasn't that complicated, and it's not that different from the technical process of films. And there's a lot of parallels with that and records. So it wasn't a big leap of, leap of uh, mental leap for me to do that. So I decided to make a single just to put it out, and, uh, and that's what I did, yeah. You mean that was Warm Leather at your yeah. first? Yeah. Jesus, well, that. At least in my perception and memory, that was a big hit. And it was also kind of a weird, I hate to use the word game changer, but that mm-hmm. just showed us, and it, uh, don't get me started. Okay. <laughs> well, it was, I mean, it was, it, it, I mean, it wasn't a hit in the, in the sense that people understand it now, but I mean, I thought nobody was going to like it because there was not much out like that. It was before yeah, Throbbing Gristle had made the first, first album. There were a lot of people, my roughly my, you know, music people who were into the same music as me, who'd gone through the punk thing, who, because it was about things, people like Cabaret Voltaire, Human yeah. League, yeah. you know, OMD, yeah. uh, we're all, we were all completely separate from each other, tinkering around, you know, we inf- had the same influences, touched by the same moments in history in terms of technology and culture, and I mean, I my I think my single came out in I don't know something like April '78, yeah, and with. Within a few months, there was a Cabaret Voltaire single, there was a Human League single, the first Robin Gristle single, even though they'd made the album. Uh, of course, there was Su- Suicide had been around for a couple of years before that. But I didn't think that my I didn't think anybody would be interested in my record because it was electronic, and you know it was it was still everybody was still listening to punk rock, you know. But it was just great timing by accident, you know, because everybody was looking for something else at that point. Rough Trade, I went to the Rough Trade shop in London, the original Rough Trade shop, to see if they wanted to buy a few copies. Hmm. And they listened to it, Jeff Travis from Rough Trade, and he said, no, well, we'd like to distribute it for you. He said, how many are you pressing? I said, well, I'm pressing the minimum amount that you could press in those days, which is 500. He said, well, you should do 2,000. And uh, it, it got a couple of really great reviews, and... Who gave those reviews? Do you happen to remember? Oh, well, I definitely remember the first one, which was as a woman called Jane Suck. Oh, I remember her. Yeah, yeah she was a singles reviewer for Sounds. Yeah. And she, they were the most radical of the four. Yeah, they were. That, it, it moved, yeah, they were at that time. Then at the enemy became more... Yeah, Melody Maker they were was, up there. Yeah, Melody I, Maker was always a bit more... Yeah, mainstream, yeah. yeah. But they all, they all gave it good reviews, but uh, Jane Suck gave it a, a ridiculously good review. She got a hold, because I left a test pressing at Rough Trade just so they could play it to people. And she picked up a copy of the test pressing mm. uh, from there and reviewed the test pressing and gave it a ridiculously good review. I can still remember the feeling I had when I saw it. I said, well, that, is that, that's, that, that's my record that she's talking about there? You know, it couldn't quite... Anyway. So it became a kind of underground hit in that sense. Um, it was a big deal here. I started, through the mail, I started getting these playlists from American radio stations, college, I guess, college radio stations. How do they find you? That's weird. Well, I put my address on the back of the record cause I, oh. I, because I thought that's what you did. <laughs> you know? And, um, yeah, and they got it through importers. I mean, I, there was no official release in the States, but there were a lot of people in 
and pull no, some No, I was one of your importers. Oh, really? I, I was the first American hired to start rough trade in America. Okay. Jeff Travis visited yeah. me and hired me, basically. Oh, oh, great. He also funded research. I never knew that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this wow. was in, I think, late 79. Yeah. But we got your record, and we would personally sell it at the store because we were Ballardian. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I, 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 I never knew that. That's great. Thank you. So that, that's probably how these radio stations... In fact, it was probably a San Francisco or L.A. radio station playlist that I got first. I couldn't quite believe that this stuff was happening, you know. It was actually on radio in America, but, you know. Anyway. Well, in a few cities, you know. Yeah. LA, so, yeah, a few yeah. cities, yeah. Not yeah. right across the country. No, no. Were but they, so in that sense, in that world, it was just, it was just like an alternative hit, I guess. Yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah. Because it was so different. Mm. And then a kinky, yeah. you know, warm yeah. leather rat. I know. And then I think, <laughs> I was young. And a lot, no, a lot of, I think a lot of people read J.G. Ballard in my social group. Yeah. A lot right. read Crash. Yeah. A lot of punks read Crash. Yeah, course, I mean, yeah. it was more of a book culture then. Yeah, that's right. Wow, so... Um, Jane suck. Yeah. Were they sending you the playlist because they were going to pay you for playing? Oh no, this no, song? no, no, they no. weren't playing it. No. They I just think they were just in, just information. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah, just I think just to let me know, and mm -hmm. I think that was great that they did that because I wouldn't have known otherwise. You know. Right. That's so smart. You put your real address on the record. Well, it wasn't smart. It was just like every, I thought that's what everybody did. You know. <laughs> my real home address and landline phone numbers in every book I did yeah. no one ever calls oh. I mean I kind of like that <laughs> but, but um, let, let's go back to the um, gee I, I, the making of the record I mean how the hell did you write the song did you do you keep tons of notebooks with lines in them I mean I don't get it, it I know the lyrics are very minimal but still yeah, no, I, it's a concept yeah I can't really remember I mean you mean the lyric? The lyric? How did I do the lyric? Well, how did you do the music? I mean, you lay down a beat. I did a I few. Guess. I yeah, know. I did a few versions of the music. Ah. A couple of versions, and I kind of, I sort of, I ended up with that version. But but actually, technically, how I did it, yeah, because I mean, there was no, I didn't have a sequencer or anything like that. It was all hand played. And I, as I said, I had the Korg 700S, which uh, which we were talking about last night, being a great, such a great synth because um, it has this function on it that you can switch between two sounds, which is very unusual, actually, on any synthesizer. Just I create one, on one part of the synth, you can create a sound, and then switch between that and another sound. So I could do, do like a kick drum and snare drum by cut, switching between these two elements on the synth. It's a really great synth, because it looks like it should be like an accompaniment thing for an organ, a Hammond organ or something, you know, to play little flute parts and stuff like that. It's even got a couple of things like uh, to, to, to hold you know to hold sheet music on it but then it's got all these really weird ring modulators and things in it so it's a really strange concept I'd love to meet the guy or girl or woman who designed it to find out what was in their minds when they what, what they thought the where they thought this was going when they did it. anyway so yeah so I just so I played yeah I think on that yeah I played the drums I got a drum beat which I which I based on I stole, no, I didn't steal it, but I, it was kind of based on... Uh, it's okay to steal. Uh, it's all, which was based on the drum beat on Oh Yeah by Can. Oh. But, but without, of course, Jackie Liebertside playing it, it's slightly, you wouldn't really recognise it, but that's what influenced it. And then I just wanted, yeah, and then I just did the vocal. Well, no, and then I did the one, I mean, there's only, it's a four track. There's only like four parts on it, I think. I don't think I bounced anything. Let me think of the drum. No, it's just one vocal track. One drum track and two synth tracks. Two, well, they're all synth, but you know. And that was it. It was minimal because I liked it. I wanted it to be minimal, but I also had no capability of make, doing anything that wasn't minimal. <laughs> I had no keyboard skills, you know, so I couldn't do like lead synth like solos on it or anything like that, you know. You're better off. Yeah, thank, yeah, thank, thank, yeah, thank the Lord. <laughs> you know, <laughs> thank you for not giving me a musical gift. I really appreciate that. <laughs> And, but you did. It sounds to me like though there is some. I don't want. I don't know what you call them. Echo effects. I mean, there's there's a there's a sound of a room or you know there's 
There's not really. I mean, there's just, there's no, I think on, on TVOD, which is the other track, right. that was slightly marginally different because there was the sound of a room because I recorded the TV, you know, it's got those little cut-up things from a TV. Yeah. That's just me recording a TV, changing the channels, you know, uh, randomly, <laughs> in time, sort of in time. In real time. In real time, yeah. That's but funny. no, I, th yeah, I, I did actually, for the session, if I want to laughingly call the session, because I... <laughs> I rented, uh, I didn't have any effects units at all. I was just using things like completely clean, which I liked actually. I didn't want to have too many effects on things at that moment. But I did hire a Echo, Space Echo for a day, which I didn't really use in the end. I used it more like a kind of, I think I'm, um, I, don't, I, hard, I didn't really use it actually, but I had it. But it was good to rent it for a day because that meant that I had to do everything in a day. I had to finish it off. And because um, otherwise I would have gone on forever. So I, yeah, I recorded both of them in like a twenty-four hour session. The same twenty-one twenty-four yeah, hour one session. Yeah, one twenty-four. Yeah. The both tracks. Yeah, because I'd rented this echo machine, so I thought, God, I've rented this machine. I better, even though I didn't really use it, and then it's just, a, yeah, I've got to finish. I finish it, and I, yeah, that was it. I mean, I'd done versions of it before, before mm -hmm. that. You know, I'd arrived at that kind of version, but yeah. Wow, and then what did you do? You sent it to a pressing plant, or what well, I to, no? I, well, then I no, I, I, you know, from reading these uh, instructions on how to make a record, I realised I had to get it mastered. Oh. And there was a place not far from where I lived, so I went there. And he said so he was the first. The guy, the mastering engineer, uh, was the first guy who heard the record, and first person who'd heard the record outside. And I, and I, I listened to it in there. It sounded terrible. Um, it's the same today. I hate going to mastering sessions because the guys they have that set up so it works for them. But for me, everything always sounds terrible in the actual mastering studio. It sounds great when you take it home. It's just because they have their speakers set up. You know, I don't know, whatever. And it sounded awful. And I said, I said to him, "So what do you think?" He said, "Don't give up your day job." <laughs> and I thought, well, and he was kind of a hippie, so I thought that's a good thing, you know. <laughs> But wait, it sounded terrible, but it didn't sound terrible on the real No, but no, it's just, it's just in this other environment. I was so used to listening to it at home, mm. and I did it mostly on headphones because I couldn't make so much noise, oh, and, right. and it sounded pretty good on headphones, and then when I heard it on these kind of really super hi-fi speakers, it just didn't sound very good, but I thought, well, whatever, I've done it now, let's go. Mm. Yeah, and, then, and then, yeah, and then I sent it to a pressing plant. I took it to a pressing plant called All Lake, which was in East London, and they was all the, and all the people that I contacted looked like the sleeve printing. So you had to get the sleeve printed, you had to get the label printed, all that kind of stuff. And I just kind of got my head around how the order of doing things. But the thing that was great was they were super helpful and super friendly. They weren't dismissive of oh you're only doing five hundred well okay. They were super friendly. They explained how it all worked, and actually some of the people. That we worked with them we're still using them 30 40 odd years later so it paid off for them to be nice to me in those days you know and so, yeah so i got the record pressed uh i got some test pressings all right white labels seven inch which is obviously just seven inch at the time right. and i went i thought well i'm going to start playing this to shops see if they want to buy any you know and i went the the, the, the nearest shop to the because i lived in north london this this was in east london and uh, on my way in from to town from East London, there was the, the nearest shop. The first shop I passed was Small Wonder, which was a legendary independent shop at the time. Great shop and a, le and a record label as well. I think they did the first Cure records actually. Cure. Cure. Wow. Yeah. And I played the guy called the there. You know, it's a tiny shop. You know, and I played to Pete, who was the guy who was, he was there behind the. I didn't know him, but I. He said, "Yeah, not bad. Yeah, we'll take ten. I th no, you take a box. I said, "Wow, that's twenty-five. You know." And uh, that was that was good. He was kind of very very kind of cool about it, kind of casual. Uh, yeah, we'll take we'll take a box, you know. And I went to the next one on route was the Rough Trade Shop, as I mentioned before. And uh, yeah, so I just went in there, and the, Judith, who was working by the counter, she was there for a long, long time. She's not there anymore, but she must have been there for thirty years. And um, she said, "Oh yeah, you better play it to Jeff and Richard." Richard Scott, who was oh, Jeff's yeah, partner I, I at that remember. time. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so I went back. In, did you ever go to the original Rough Trade Shop at 202 Kensington Park uh, Road? Um, afraid not. Yeah, it was just a shop, and then there was a little 
room at the back, which was like a tiny little warehouse. So I went back there and they said, I think it might have been Bleaker Bob. There was an American who was in there buying records at that time. Wow. I think it might have been Bleaker Bob. I can't remember. Anyway, Jeff said, just, oh, just hang on a minute. I'm just dealing with this guy and then we'll have a listen. So we went back into the shop. And I'd never been to the Rough Trade shop up to that point because for the year or so before, I'd been working as a film editor up in outside London. And I never got had the time to go to the shop but there was a small local shop to the where I was working and they used to order stuff for me from Rough Trade so I had a relationship with Rough Trade kind of arm's length they'd, you know, but I'd never been to the shop and because it was like the coolest hippest temple of whatever <laughs> I, I was really intimidated I felt intimidated going in there you know but actually again people were super friendly and it was a really nice vibe in there nice atmosphere and so Jeff and Richard heard it in the shop they played it in the shop that was another terrible moment for me because the show was full of cool people you know and uh, I was going oh god and they looked you know they would they, I could see they were kind of while they were playing it they were kind of sh kind of looking through the racks of their stuff talking to each other so I thought they're not really into it you know and then they said they turned around and said yeah we'd, we love it we'd like to distribute it um, as I said before so that was the beginning of a very long and uh, relationship with Rough Trade wow yeah no, I mean, I hadn't thought about Richard Scott for 30-some years. Yeah. He came here. Yeah, he was the one who started the Rough Trade organization. He was the instigator of it, I think, of the Rough Trade. Oh, before Jeff Travis? Well, no, I don't know. They were together, but yeah. uh, but he was the one that pushed for the American Oh, outfit. he's the one. Yeah. Huh. Well, Jeff did come here, though. I'm sure, yeah, but it was Richard's, I think, concept. Oh. Uh, because Jeff was very much on the musical side and Rich yeah. was more on the business side. Oh, that's right. Yeah, loosely. Loosely right. structured in that way. But Yeah. Wow. But of course, Jeff had been... The Rough Trade shop was very influenced by American stores, I think. Jeff had travelled around the States and brought a load of records back and that's when he started the Rough Trade shop. Maybe and it was Bob's was one. But I think it's more around here, actually. Oh, here? Yeah. Yeah, we had some great stores here. Yeah. Patty Smith, in I think, 75 or 6, mm -hmm. um, she did an appearance at this side on a record store on the north side of Berkeley, UC mm -hmm. Berkeley. I went to Berkeley a million yeah. years ago. And um, it was like up in the balcony, she was just reading poetry or something. Yeah. Went to that. And, yeah, so there's a there's a couple of good there's, there's a couple of really good doc, rough trade documentaries. Oh, there are um, and books which kind of document all that sort of uh, very. I early heard I got slammed in one of them, but you did. I, well, that's what someone told me. I haven't I haven't found those books yet, um, but there there are some some people there that. <laughs> wait, this isn't about me. This no, but I'm interested you. because I think it might, we may have had a similar experience. So tell me. They were getting very politically correct at one point. Yeah, Beyond, they fired me. I, I, I mean, I was actually hired to, to do research tabloids, and yeah. the research was funded by Jeff Travis. Yeah. I mean, I got 200 a week as a salary, and they mm. paid the printing bill for the wow. first three issues. Mm. Yeah. So that's the kind of funding. And, yeah. and I brought in Ruby Ray to be my photographer, okay. ex-girlfriend. Right. And... Um, then I just launched it on my own. Yeah. I'm out of here. If you if you don't have a lot of overhead, you can keep going, sure. even if nothing sells. Yeah. But they went through this kind of weird, really super Very, politically yeah, correct. Yeah, I hated all those people. You know, I hate all collectives. And, it, and, it, and they, they were like, and they were they were kind of making. They wouldn't like, for instance, they wouldn't have the play. They wouldn't stop the White House records and stuff. Like oh, that. I, yeah, I remember. And that. there was this big talk about where the throbbing gristle should be. You know, what I mean, it's yeah. like. Because they use sim, you know, imagery and stuff like that. I thought, oh, yeah. this is like, this is completely opposite of what I thought it was. Yeah, yeah. You know, That's what kind of freedom of expression and yeah, un, you know, not taking, you know, understanding it, these things beyond just the face value. And I thought well, that became that was a bit tricky that time that period. Yeah, because I, I played on, well, I didn't play on a, I play, did I play on a white? I, well, I played on William um, Bennett's, Bennett's re first record. Oh, you did. Yeah, I didn't. Was know that White House or was it Coombe? Come. Th that was that had a white cover. Yeah, I don't no, think it was White House. No, it was before no. White House. Yeah, 
because I knew I met him because uh, um, I was playing live, did a few gigs with another electronic musician called Robert Rental. Yeah, I remember that. Who who released his own seven inch, and we met and decided to work together because some people wanted us to do some shows. And one of the things we did was we supported, we did a rough, small rough trade tour. Oh, nice. Supporting Stiff Little Fingers. Wow. And Essential Logic. Ooh. And William Bennett was in Essential Logic oh. as a guitarist. And that's and we got to know him, and he was clearly much more interested in what we were doing than what he was doing, <laughs> as musically at that point. He was like a real, it was funny, he was like a real little flower child. He was very young. He had like, you know, he looked like Mark Bolan or something like that, you know. Um... He was a very, and he was really interested in what we were doing, like really kind of, we spent a lot of time with him getting, showing him the synths and stuff. We had a pretty basic setup, And then he asked me to play on his, do some sat noise on his first, on his first record. Yeah, noise was then a mm. kind of transgressive concept. Well, it was a very low frequency noise, almost bass. Oh, oh. Not kind of noise, not noise. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if they knew about all that. Mm. Subharmonic stuff that makes you take take a poop or something. Yeah. I forgot what they call that. But yeah, it's those low frequencies. Yeah, super low frequencies. Yeah. 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 Wow. So, how did you meet Robert Reynolds then? What happened to him? Hmm. He passed away sadly, maybe 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Hmm. I met him. Uh, well, I met him at a Throbbing Gristle gig. Of course. Yeah, of course, as you do. <laughs> Uh, at the London Filmmakers Co-op. Oh, there, huh. Um, which was kind of a legendary gig. Hmm. Uh, they did a lot of stuff there at that place. And we were just hanging around after the show, talking to the bat, talking to, you know, sure. Throbbing Gristle, and he was there, and we just started talking, and I think his record was, it was really very soon after my single came out, and... He's just, he was just about to release his single. And he'd also been working with another guy called Thomas Lear. Yeah, yeah. And um, we just became quite, you know, friendly. You know, we just had a similar had ideas and stuff like that. And then there's a company called Final Solution um, who wanted to, to put together a show, a, a concert with all these new electronic bands. And they asked both uh, him and me individually if we wanted to do it. And neither of us wanted to do it on our own, so we decided to do it as a duo. So that's how we, and we did a few gigs like that. We did, um, we, we got a, a residency in Paris in a club called the Gibus. Oh, I remember that. Which was a famous kind yeah. of punk club, really. Yeah. Um, we got put up in the, that's hilarious. Wow, you got a residency there? Well, three days, or a week, three okay. or four nights. Okay. And we stayed in this kind of uh, brothel hotel, one-hour hotel with rats in it and stuff like that. It was a great kind of bohemian Parisian experience, is what I could say. A lot of alcohol and good food that went with it. Um, <laughs> bohemian Parisian. Um, that's not near that band douche of it or something. Well, the band douche was a bit later on. That yeah, that was later. Yeah, but that was that's a that was a good venue too. Um, it was more. It was, I wouldn't call that bohemian, though. That was more kind of oh, the band alternative band. chic. Yeah, you're band right. Douche, you know. Yeah, I went there once. Yeah, but all our bands played there. I mean, in the early days, you know, Depeche played there, Fat Gadget played there, um, DAF, I'm sure, played there. Um, yeah. And where were we? Yes, Robert. Yeah, so Robert. Well, Rental, you yeah. and Robert Reynolds. Robert, Re yeah, and so and Robert was not a very. He made that. He did a great album with Thomas Lear after that on Industrial Records, Throbbing Gristle's label. But he was very, you know, he's one of these guys who did great stuff but never could understand that it was great. You know, there's quite a few musicians or artists, obviously. I'm sure we all know people like that. Yeah. And they kind of self-destruct in a way. Their own, or they destroy their own work in a way or just yeah. don't put it out there because they just don't... They think it's terrible and everybody else thinks it's great. And the, and the better everybody else thinks it is, the worse they think it is. It's very sad, really, because I know a few, know a few really super talented people yeah. who have gone down that road. And 
he did a couple more. He did one single on mute later on, which uh, which was a really great single. And then I tried to kind of encourage him to do more things, and he but nothing ever came of it really. And then he, sadly, he he died of cancer. Wow. I don't know. I think fifteen years. It might have been longer. I don't know. Yeah. Very sad. Yeah. Wow. I guess he really needed you or a partner. Mm. Some people are like that. Yeah, but he. I mean, he got it together with. Thomas to do those, you know, they, they put out singles, as I said, roughly the same time as me, right. just separately, but, you know, but, um, but we had fun on the, on the road, we hated, we were hated, the bat, the, the audience hated us, it was like a stiff little fingers <laughs> audience, and they were, I mean, they were great guys and everything, but there was like a kind of pope, sort of new wavy punk band, yeah, yeah. and we got, every night we were completely covered in cigarette ends and... <laughs> spit and any every kind of thing that could be thrown on stage but we we, we went we got through every single gig we, that was kind of our thing that was our mantra we're not going to give up we're not walking off stage however horrible or violent it gets we're just going to carry on to the end you know and that's you with playing with with robert yeah that's me and robert playing together yeah. and it was uh, the, the, you know if, there was always like two people who came backstage and said it was amazing you know and were really <laughs> fascinated by it I guess I don't know what happened to those people. Maybe they went on to make electronic music or something. Yeah. Out of all those, out of the thousand people there who hated us, there was like two, two of them were. were a thousand people came to your show. That's well, not huge. my shows. Well, well, not our shows. It was Stiff Little Fingers. Okay. And they were just had released their first album, which was a hit, actually charted. So yeah, so they were they were quite, they were quite a big band. At that, yeah, they were yeah. quite a big band at that time. They didn't come to see us, the thousand people, no, <laughs> definitely not. But that's funny that you got to be the opening act to yeah. such a huge audience. Yeah. It's funny, it was funny, yeah, kind of, yeah. And then Essential Logic with the second act, Laura Logic, who used to be in X Ray Specs. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we, here we loved X Ray Specs. Yeah. Sing along with, all the, with their records. Mm. They were like a big deal. It's yeah, amazing yeah. how young they were. They were incredibly young. Yeah. God. Yeah, unbelievably young. I mean, Laura Logic, when she was on that tour, it was her band. She was 16 or something? Yeah, I think so. It was really young, yeah. Yeah, like it was. Well, there there were some young people in bands, not many. Yeah, yeah. 15, 14, mm. I mean, Harry Up or something. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So you didn't give up after this wonderful little tour. Where did the tour go? I went all around the UK. Who? I mean, I mean, we played in Birmingham, Liverpool, Manchester, Halifax. Wow. I remember Halifax. I remember Halifax, which is a small Yorkshire town, kind of an old industrial town, or probably not industrial. Yeah, whatever. And all these bikers had come. To see us, wow. like, to see you guys, yeah, to see us, like heavy duty, like bikers, because they loved warm leatherette, you know. Oh, God. <laughs> that was a funny. That they were really nice guys, but they weren't the kind of guys you'd want to get on the wrong side of, you know. But they were very friendly and bought us drinks and stuff. But there was about fifteen of these kind of big, greasy bikers, you know. That was funny. Yeah, no, we, yeah, Norwich, Wales, Scotland, I don't know, everywhere, yeah, all wow. over. I'm amazed there would be punk clubs. Well, I guess yeah. Of well, this was by, this was be. like seventy. This was already early seventy nine. Seventy nine. Yeah, I guess punk could really have spread. It had crossed over. It had crossed over. It crossed. Yeah. It was kind of new wave, which was what, it, what we call new wave is different to what Americans call new wave. Actually, hmm. I think I think we always put down that word. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Their new wave. In England, anyway, what new wave meant was people like. Um, Elvis Costello. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, yeah. bands who you don't really can't probably yeah, nobody remembers yeah. who had like they don't even the, seem the Jags, uh, kind of one hit. You know, the big new wave. Of course, the big new American new wave band was was the Knack. Oh yeah. And they yeah. always wore kind of slim ties. I know that. that jeans with white sh trainers, that, that kind of look. Definitely the the suit coat. Yeah. But a lot of Americans yeah. that I meet who call, talk about New Wave, they talk about more like kind of the more electronic side of things they call New Wave. Really? Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, that's... But, yeah. So that, so it was like post-punk. Of course, there were good... They didn't call it that, yeah. And there were some, some good bands that came out of that, of course, some really good bands like um, 
Gang of Four and those kind of people. Yeah. But anyway, so, so yeah, so the, it, it had crossed over, really, by that time. The, the yeah, audience... Yeah, 79. Yeah, but you so. guys, remember, punk started earlier in England than, than, in, well, than in San Francisco. Oh, maybe, yeah. But in New York, it started in New York, really, didn't it? Yeah, so I 73, think, I thought. Four, yeah, definitely. Yeah, New York Dolls, you yeah, know, Suicide, Patty Smith. Patty Smith. That's I, kind of the beginnings of it, the CBGB's thing and everything. First person I read about was Patty Smith. Yeah, Max's Kansas City. Is that, was that what it called? Well, it was one place. Yeah. I remember reading about it and uh, a lot. There was actually in the Melody Maker, there was a, a New York correspondent. And I was fascinated by the scene. It sounded great to me yeah. when I was reading about yeah. these bands. It sounded really exciting. And then I heard the first Ramones album when it came out. Yeah. And that was another game changer. That that's a game changer for me. That no, me album. too. That was, I was really... That was kind of big, quite a big influence on me as well, that first Ramones album. Yeah, just in terms of the structure, the brevity, the right, the lyrics. I remember, I remember the first time I heard a Ramones track. I, it was on John Peel, of course, and um, I, you know, it's one of those things where you turn on halfway through the song and you don't know what it is. I thought, wow, this sounds great. What is this? It kind of sounds like you know, my, these things were going through my head. What is this? It almost sounds like noise seventy something from noise seventy five, and then the. the the, the moment came when there would normally have been a solo, and there was no solo. Yeah, and I thought, this is, right. I've got to get this record. You know? Yeah, that's right, no solos. Yeah. That was kind of revolutionary. Yeah, it was. <laughs> and fast and short. And fast and short. Yeah. And no break between songs. Yeah, <laughs> and kind of, kind of pop at the same time, you know. Yeah. And melodic, little, you know, pop melodies. Little and, Beach Boys. -y. Yeah. Little. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. And great lyrics and stuff, you know, so. Yeah. Kind of heavy lyrics mm. sometimes about being a 50, 33rd or whatever, being a hooker there, yeah, that's right, hooker yeah. and stuff like wow, yeah, <laughs> beat on the brat, you know, oh, yeah, the, with a the baseball, baseball bat, yeah, <laughs> beat on the brat with a on the brat with yeah. a baseball bat, yes, that hmm. <laughs> <laughs> But they were kind of comic comic strip lyrics, weren't they? In a way. Well, that's what they read. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, simple, concise, mm. um, evocative. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you went on this tour all over England. Had you traveled to England all over there before? I'd been around. I traveled around England somewhat, but um, not. I, there were some certainly some places I haven't been to. Yeah, like Halifax. Is <laughs> it worth going to? I don't know. It's a long time since I've been there. You know, it's probably been regenerated three times since then. You know, so it was one of those one industry towns. Oh, steel maybe? No, I think it was more in the. I think it was more like a uh, textile town. Textile. The whole of that, a lot of that area did textiles. You know. Wow. Um, wow. Which just disappeared completely. Oh really? Darn. Um, but there's so many of those. I mean, it's the same here and the same all over Europe. You know, these towns were built up around a single industry, oh. and when that industry disappeared, whether it was mining or steel, or there was this city with full of people with nothing to do. You know, so that so there's this very dark time when nothing was done about these people. They were just on the dole looking for jobs. Or wow. and then, of course, people realise actually it's probably a good idea if we start tr investing in those cities to try and build new industries and things like yeah. that. And so that's. Up to a point that's happened now quite a lot all around regenerated you know huh. you know but, but it's in the 70s for sure it was a dark time for that you know a lot of unemployment a lot of wow industrial issues you know yeah but you didn't have any unemployment when you were doing that film editing where did the money come from well i was i well i was first of all i was living in london okay and there's a huge divide between london and the rest of the country in terms oh. of employment and job opportunities and everything and I would what well, it was very the film industry of those days was really heavily unionized and it was very hard to get into the union right. um, but I worked I started out working as a as a runner a messenger for a company which I did for two years wow. I think and they somehow got you know, it's one of those things, you can't get a job without a, a union card, you can't get a union card without a job. 
but you could get sponsored by if you work if you'd work for a company for a certain amount of time doing a non-union job because what I was doing was a non-union job um, they could sponsor you and then if you then continue to work for two years in that company you could get a union ticket even though you didn't have any skills well I had well I had this I'd been to film school okay. and um, so they hired me ultimately hired me as an assistant editor which is more like an administrative, you know, and then you, you, get, you learn, a, it was doing, at that time I was doing commercials, oh. which was really interesting, that taught me a lot about how to get ideas across in 30 seconds, which I thought was actually, I mean, like the idea, of, I mean, I would love to be working on amazing art films, but I wasn't, I was working on commercials, which is actually for my, for at the time was much more important, which was much more useful, because I learned so much, because if you because you, you know, if you work on a feature film, you work on a documentary. You're working on one film at a time. There, we had like thirty projects going at one time, so you're mm. learning a lot very quickly. So it was really good. And I got into the union, and then I left. Then I travelled for a while. On for a the money you'd made. Well, on, well, no, not on the money. I, no, I was making that much money then. Uh, no, I worked and travelled. You know, I was, actually, that's when I started DJing for the first time. Was in really around that time, and. Um, uh, yeah, I, I I loved the mountains. I wanted to get out. I was born and I grew up in London, and I, I needed at a certain point. I just needed to get out into the fresh air. Mm. So I, and I loved the mountains. So I uh, ended up working in a, in a mountain a ski resort in Switzerland wow. as a DJ, wow. <laughs> playing the pop hits of the time. Um, so I, I travelled for a couple of years, and, then I, and that's when I came back, just as punk was happening, I came back to the UK. Oh. And because I had a union card, I was able to get a job. I just phoned up the union, I said, I'm looking for a job. I said, okay, well, a day later I had a job. It was all very, I mean, it was, it was good for me. It wasn't necessarily good for the industry or good for a lot of people, but for me it served a really good purpose at that time. So I got straight back into work. The moment I wanted to get another job, I had a job, you know. Great. And not badly paid, you know. Course, and that—that's how you got the money to, to fund your own record. Yeah, yeah. That's always tough getting mm. that first mm. chunk. Yeah, I mean the costs in that were really, really buying the equipment. You know. Oh yeah. And yeah, fund the first and funding the test, test pressings and stuff like that. Yeah. But wait, where was the studio you used? I was where at home. <laughs> was my, wait, describe my, your home then. Well, it was, it was my home. It was my mother's home. Great. And it was in my it was my bedroom. I'd I'd been travelling and I didn't have anywhere to. live. I came back to England and I I stayed with her for a while because uh, I didn't have anywhere and I and I you know we got on well. It wasn't a problem, you know. So and I yeah I had I set literally set it up in my bedroom. Uh, so I think I did read that a million yeah. years ago. Yeah, and recorded it's, uh, in his bedroom. Yeah, and it was uh, actually you showed us a film the other yesterday, didn't you? That we about that sorry, yeah. That, that, there's a documentary about the Rough Trade tour actually, and they that oh, came around to my yeah. mum's place to to film uh, Robert Rental and me working in my bedroom on this making some sounds. Somebody filmed was, you in Super 8 yeah. or something? Like no, it was then? a TV show. Oh, a TV a documentary. show. Documentary. What was it called? Sorry. It was, it was, a, it was a documenting the... Re, I don't know the name of it, but it was documenting the Rough Trade tour. Yeah, it was, much, yeah, it, was yeah, it was a TV show, yeah. Wow. It's online somewhere. You yeah, I have it. Yeah. Great. <laughs> and you can see me and Robert, like, working away. <laughs> Neat. Yeah. Wow. I'd forgotten about that until these guys until showed it to me the other night. Yeah. Great. <laughs> So you did, how did you get a first DJ gig then? Well, I just, <laughs> I knew that I wanted to work, I, I wanted to work in the mountains. I wanted oh. to spend, I, I wanted to spend a long time in the mountains to get away from the whole thing. There was a particular place that I'd been to before uh, called Zermatt. It's in, it's in Switzerland. It's quite famous because it's right on the foot of the Matterhorn, which is a, like one of the most iconic mountains that you always see everywhere beautiful incredible place right at the end of the valley there's no cars or anything mm. and I thought well I really want to get a night job so that I can ski during the day and be in, you know, enjoy the daytime and there was a club in a hotel that I'd been to and I so I thought well I'll just go and ask them for a job and I said I'd like to apply for a job as a DJ I, I've, and they said and this was in the summer before I started I was traveling around and I went there and they said well 
and there's nobody there in the summer. They said, well, okay, we'll have a go. We'll give you a try. We'll have a, have a go DJing, you know. And I didn't have any records with me, but they had some records. And I, so I just basically DJed for a, a few hours. Never done it before in my life. To nobody in the club. Uh, in some, you know. And they said, well, we're not sure if the DJ's coming back next season. But if, but if you, if, well, you either get the coat check job or the DJ job depending on whether they come back. And I, I didn't mind, I wouldn't have minded doing the coat check job. There's no problem with that. And it's also because it's a night thing. So, but then when I, so I arrived there and I didn't know which job, six, no, six months later when the season started, I arrived not knowing if I was going to be the coat check guy or the DJ guy, but I brought records with me anyway, just in case. And I got the DJ job. And uh, I don't, I, you know, it's very different from, yeah, you, you know, you play ABBA, Deep Purple, Donna Summer, uh, the Commodores, the Rolling Stones, you know, like all over the place. But, you know, people were into it. They were just, you know, it was a tourist place. You know, there was, most of the people there just heard these hits on the radio. They liked them and they wanted to hear them in a club. You know, it was fine. I played a few things I didn't like, but generally I liked most of the stuff that I played. And okay. Autobahn had become a hit, just becoming a hit. And so I, you know, and I played that early doors. Which was nice to be able to play out uh, craft work as my part of my DJ wow, set, but that I was about know. the was limit. That was about the limit of my of that. Yeah, seventy four. That was yeah. Wow. That was oh, more, that was seventy four. That yeah. you did the DJ in seventy four to seventy six. Yeah. Wow, two years. That's two good. seasons. So there was oh, like seasons. so it was six months on, okay. and it was one of those off seasons that I'd read Crash. And one of the reasons, <laughs> I, uh, yeah. Off who turned you on to Crash? Well, I was deeply in love with this woman, and Ooh. she left me, Ooh. and I was quite upset. And we were, we were all, I was with friends and her, it's a bit in Greece somewhere, you know, and this friend in of mine. Greece? Was, yeah, on a Greek island somewhere. Wow. And then I, I went off with this, this, this friend of mine, we then went on somewhere else, traveling around for her, and he said, oh, I've got this book you might like, you know, you should read it, you know, and that was, that was it. His name was Michael Banton, maybe, and I've completely lost touch with him. He was a banker, and he, he gave me a crash, and it really helped me get through that difficult time with my girlfriend leaving me. Because I was very raw, because I was so raw emotionally, that it kind of had a, probably had a bigger impact than if I just read it as part of my general reading. You know, I was, yeah, you know, so, you, yeah. The emotional what state prepared you? Yeah, or didn't prepare me, or whatever. Well, now prepared you to, I don't know to. Bond with the book or something. Yeah, I needed some partner, somebody to sleep, something to sleep with, you know. So it was a book. You know what Ballard said, that famous quote, when you read a book, you're closer to someone, actually, than even than someone you're sleeping with where you may not know what they're really thinking.